Welcome back, listeners, to Learning from Friends. It's excited to have you here with us. I am Kay Curtis, your tour guide. I hope you are having a wonderful start to 2022. Before we get started, I want to start off the show with a quote. And I find it very interesting to kind of maybe add this as a new segment, something to, to kind of leeway into what we're talking about today or something that I feel is important that I kind of want to share with everyone. So the quote today comes from Nikki Banis. You never really know the true impact you have on those around you. You never know how much someone needed that smile you gave them. You never know how much your kindness turned someone's entire life around. You never know how much someone needed that long hug or deep talk. So don't wait to be kind. Don't wait for someone else to be kind first. Don't wait for better circumstances or for someone to change. Just be kind because you never know how much someone needs it. I mean, when I read that quote, my mother sends me a lot of quotes and the moment I read that, I was like, oh, this is so impactful. And you may have seen that a couple of months ago where I posted that quote up for around Christmas holiday time. This figures another thing to kind of add in as a nice reminder. So today's, just like every other, are extremely excited to bring it in. This one is unique because this is, I'm talking with my father-in-law and he had recently over the past couple of years has, and continues to have his battle with uh, gastroesophageal junction cancer. And today we're going to talk about that and because it's a, he has a, a big passion for um, the interest in cancer uh, unit as a whole. So today that's what we're going to talk about, kind of bringing awareness, talk about his experience and uh, bringing some more light to the topic. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Cade. Good to be here. Yeah, it's exciting. We're in Ohio right now recording this. Usually we record in Georgia, so it's it's good to get out of the state for a minute. So, Ken, our listeners have no clue who you are, nothing kind of what's going on with this. Give it a second to kind of describe yourself to us. Gosh, well, Cade, I spent... Uh... Most of my growing up in central Pennsylvania, uh, went to Penn State, graduated in hotel restaurant management, uh, started working for a hotel company in Cleveland, and uh, after 11 months, was for reasons yet unknown, promoted into corporate human resources, and then spent the next 40 or so years in corporate HR. Corporate HR with with HR meaning human resources, correct? Correct. And you worked specifically within like working with benefits, like insurance and and such? Just about every aspect of HR, uh, primarily in benefits, but have also worked in labor relations, recruiting, training, uh, general HR, and then being the uh, uh, interim managing director of HR for a fairly large company. So we had... Uh, Probably about fifty employees in HR. Wow! So you you're constantly all over the place, making sure that everybody is following safety regulations, make sure everybody's taken care of, and as well as the company and the individual as a whole. Anytime I have a question that comes to insurance, come to open enrollment time, my wife Katie, your daughter, and I call and ask, and then also whenever something comes up with we're having to go to the doctor and we get a random bill or something that comes in our home, we're like, Ken. We're confused, and you just have all this random knowledge in the back of your head with that that just pops up, and it's yeah, it's amazing. And also, 
just being able to call and talk is always something new I'm learning from you. Well, thanks, Caden. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. I've been learning a whole bunch from you too. <laughs> we have these different kind of, not walks of life, but different, um, you know, um, generation, different kind of a, approach to life in that sense. And it's been interesting over the last, was it been 10 years now yeah. that we've known each other? Uh, yeah. This <laughs> is interesting. I remember just sharing some fun little stories here uh, is coming in from anytime getting picked up from the airport or anytime that we have to, we get in a car together. If I'm sitting in the back seat, Ken's in the front seat, I can never understand what's happening because he talks so quietly and I'm partially deaf and I talk really loud. Uh, and so it's one of those, Ken might be talking and I'm sitting in the back going either, uh-huh, yeah, uh, okay. And then I'll look over to my wife, Katie, and go, what is he saying? <laughs> what's what's taking place right now? That's kind of fun little, in fun little kind of stuff going on there. And, and Ken was very intimidating being whenever you're going and visiting your, you know, Future father-in-law. Future father-in-law. It's always in intimidating, especially when you're going up and you're staying with the father-in-law, like future father-in-law, your first time up and you have no idea what you to kind of expect here. And Ken's very calm and collected. So in the back of my head, I'm like, I am not going to make it through this next like four or five days because just I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's saying because I'm a very vocal person about what's going on in my mind. And I'm like, ah. So Ken, what's an interesting, fun story that you have of, from our time knowing each other for the last 10 years? Well, gosh, probably lots of fun stories. Uh, it's been fun finding out about your growing up and some of the things that you did that hopefully you don't do anymore, like ride uh, uh, shopping carts down the hill and things like that. But it's just been fun getting to know you. It's been a, a real pleasure. Yeah, I always enjoy getting to go on our walks. Those mm -hmm. are always the most informative. Or getting in the car and going for a drive somewhere. And it's just the two of us. It's always calming, relaxing. And you're always open for whenever I ask questions. Just kind of po poking along is you never really... If you, if I do go too far, you're like, yeah. You very have the kind, delicate way of diverting the conversation, which is a skill that I've always wanted to kind of pick up and learn. <laughs> Uh, just work in HR. Yeah, I can believe that. Work in education, I can kind of pick up little bits of, okay, now we're going to talk about this. But to go back to what we were going to talk about today, um, how did you start to become more interested in cancer? Well, it started uh, quite accidentally, like a whole lot of things in life. Uh, I retired early and uh, well, during my working career, I've been very active with a large employer health coalition uh, based here in Ohio and was their uh, secretary on the board. When I retired, they asked me if I'd come back and actually work for the coalition for a two-year project to help employers tailor their benefits and their HR policies to help employees and dependents with a cancer diagnosis. So while I wasn't really familiar with cancer, I was familiar with HR policy and benefits. Uh, it was a great project. Spent a year working with a fellow who uh, spent much of his career in HR policies in cancer. So over the first year, we worked with some large companies, uh, some large banks, several universities here in Ohio, 
and a number of other employers, uh, both uh, governmental and private. A year into the project, I uh, was diagnosed with cancer. So it came out of the blue, and it was very helpful what I'd learned during this period about cancer. Had learned where to get credible advice and information. Because when you go out to the internet and you Google something, you get an amazing amount of information. Yeah, it's extremely overwhelming. Well, overwhelming, and then some outdated, uh, some just clearly fraudulent, you know, where they're advising that you should come to us, take our over-the-counter herbs, and you know, stop seeing your doctor because they're just out to try and make money. So all sorts of things. So anyhow, uh, when I was diagnosed with cancer, one of the things I wanted to do was go to one of the uh, 13 comprehensive cancer centers in the United States. Uh, luckily, two of them are here in Cleveland, uh, the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals. Uh, I selected University Hospitals and <clears throat> went in for our first meeting with a cancer surgeon. And I'm thinking, gosh, okay, I have uh, cancer in a little spot in my stomach. And so I thought, well, you just cut out a big chunk of your stomach. And the doc said, no, that's not quite how it works. Uh, when you have gastric cancer, we take out your entire stomach <laughs> from the... Very rude awakening. Yeah, from the valve at the top of the esophagus, uh, all the way down to the valve at the bottom where the stomach uh, empties into the small intestine. And then they also usually grab uh, your gallbladder. So, you know, my wife and I are thinking, this seems a little extreme. Yeah, that is definitely and a... So, I found a little spot. We're taking the whole thing. But what? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we went away. Uh, they proceeded with more studies, uh, PET scans, uh, transesophageal ultrasound, and a bunch of other things, uh, MRIs, uh, to provide cancer staging, which is where they try to estimate uh, how much the cancer has grown and is it spread. And as it started out initially, they thought I might be stage 2B. Uh, stage 1 is the least problematic. Stage four means it's metastasized and spread throughout the body. Uh, then they did some more studies and they moved it down to 3A, which is more serious than to 3B. Uh, they thought they would still do the surgery. And prior to the surgery, they open you up with uh, laparoscopically and they look around your abdominal cavity to see if they can find any spread of the cancer. And uh, <clears throat> fortunately, they didn't. But they do something called a cytological wash, where they put saline solution in your abdomen and then suck it out and look at the cells they find, because they're looking for abnormal cells that would indicate the presence of cancer. So after the... Uh, 
uh, surgery, uh, which is really relatively minor, uh, the pathology report came back with abnormal cells, which would indicate that it was stage four, and they can no longer do the surgery because if it once it's spread, there's no point in cutting out the cancer. Uh, the challenge with that is the five-year survival rate uh, for a stage four is six percent. Wow! So it's it's not particularly good. Uh, the overall survival rate for gastric cancer, for, if you take all patients, is thirty-two percent. So not. Uh, you know, not not the cancer that you want to get. When was it that like what? When was it dis discovered that maybe there was something wrong that you needed to go to the doctor and kind of get checked out? Well, uh, it was October fifteenth, two thousand fifteen. Uh, I was at home and starting to feel very tired, and uh, actually I had. Uh, also passed some very dark, uh, tarry stool when I went to the bathroom and really didn't think anything of it other than it's just extremely tired. And uh, uh, went was going to take a nap and uh, uh, instead ended up, I decided to go to the emergency room. And when I got there, they uh, died did a preliminary diagnosis of potential cancer. Uh, it only took them a couple of minutes. Oh, wow. That quickly? Yeah. They uh, examined the stool, just oh, looked at it and okay. said, yeah, we're sending you straight down to the main hospital. And so they uh, sent me down to uh, one of the university hospitals. Uh, and then the next day did... Uh, uh, Scope? Yes, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I can randomly pull out words. Uh, where they looked down my throat, and they found a small lesion. Uh, and it didn't look too serious. But uh, fortunately, at a comprehensive cancer center, they have something called the tumor board. Okay. Which is for every cancer patient, they meet with one day a week, and review every cancer patient they've got. Wow. I bet so, you that's a long day. I'm sure it is. But in the room, you have surgical oncologists, radi radiation oncologists, medical oncologists. You have pathologists and several other specialists in the room. And they apparently said, you know, from that little lesion they found, that couldn't have caused the bleeding. Whoa, so that's adding a whole new like element. A whole new twist. So they went back and they had the uh, doctor who heads up the endoscopy section, went in and did another endoscopy, and then found a major lesion right at the joint of where the esophagus uh, attaches to the stomach. And that explained the bleeding. Oh. Now, one of the problems when you get a bleed like this is a fair number of people actually just simply immediately bleed to death. Oh, my gosh. Uh, when you're 
you know, that's how they discover it, is the person is bled to death. Because the lesion uh, actually breaks through the wall of the vein or artery, and uh, you just bleed very rapidly. And that's why I was so tired, is I'd lost that much blood. Oh, wow. So when I went to the hospital for the endoscopy, I also got a transfusion uh, just because I didn't have enough blood volume and they couldn't bring it back with plasma or saline. Uh, so anyhow, uh, uh, after we got the bad news that uh, it probably was stage four, we did the logical thing. We called a friend who's, who's a nurse and we went out to dinner. What else are you going to do? Good to use your resources that are available to you. And then uh, a couple days later, we got a call from our uh, oncologist, and she said that they had them rerun the tests, relook at the cells, and they thought it was okay to do the surgery. So uh, I think it was the day before Christmas in 2015, I started my chemotherapy. And so it was chemotherapy once a week for, I believe, 13 weeks, and then uh, had radiation therapy five days a week for a total of, I think it was 28 bouts of radiation, and uh, then a month off and had surgery. Uh, all went very well. I mean, it was uh, quite painful. Uh, and challenging the first couple of months. However, by uh, the end of May, uh, Lydia and I were already out hiking in one of the state parks. Uh, in July, we flew out to uh, a national park in Colorado and went hiking out there. A year later, we hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So recovery was very good. Now, a lot of people wonder, so what's life like without a stomach? Yeah, that's <clears throat> always something that's like, wait, it's connecting here. You're going down to the small intestine. Wait, what about the acids and stuff you have in your stomach? <laughs> well, uh, frankly, it's totally weird. Yes. But, <laughs> or conceptually weird. But... Uh, one of the things I was surprised to find was that life is extraordinarily normal. Uh, matter of fact, if it wasn't a deadly cancer, boy, I could probably become a salesman for this <laughs> because uh, a couple of things happen. One is you have to eat all of the time. Uh, so if you think of it as like bariatric surgery on steroids, uh, you food goes through you pretty fast. Uh, you have to continuously eat just to maintain your weight. And I like eating. You, yeah, and you are a phenomenal cook. That's kind of a little bit of your background. Any any time we come up, uh, I always eat amazing. Not saying anything against being down south where I have all this <laughs> wonderful food, but it's always different. Now, whenever you're, I want to jump back a little bit with the the the. With the radiation and the chemo, going into these, how do they pick what type of um, chemo treatment or what type of radiation that they were going to do on you? Was there a 
uh, kind of like a selection of choice for that? Because I, I imagine that each one's each cancer needs something different. Did your doctors like? Did you have like a team of doctors that were able to kind of get there and decide this? Do they consult with you on what choices you had? That's a, a really good question because I think a lot of people look at cancer treatment as uh, the docs experimenting on you, and, and that's not all the uh, that's not the case at all. The thirteen comprehensive cancer centers that I mentioned work together along with eighteen pure research laboratories and have formed a group called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN. And this group sets the cancer protocols for how to treat cancer, and these protocols are used throughout the world. They're free to hospitals and physicians. So uh, depending on the type of cancer, its stage, and other criteria, they have flow charts which show that if you have, for example, gastric cancer, and it's at this stage, that you know, if the person is in this type of health, you can uh, you know, do the chemo, and this would be the type of chemo drugs you'd use. This would be the radi- type of radiation you'd use. So it's really, for lack of a better term, a cookbook with how to treat all the different kinds of cancers. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to go to a comprehensive cancer network hospital. Uh, or, uh, those are the physicians that are the leading edge people in the world in deciding how to treat cancer. What qualifies a hospital as that? As a comprehensive cancer network? Yes. Uh, I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, just you never know. That's some, that's the fun thing. Whenever you get into these interviews, as well, is you you sometimes it's okay to say you don't know. That's a part of life. Of you're not going to have all the answers. And I think that's a good thing we haven't experienced yet on the podcast. So that's awesome. A little a little first well, it into there. I believe it's not something that a, a hospital can say. Oh. We're a comprehensive cancer hospital. Okay. Uh, I believe the standard is set by the National uh, the National Institute of Health with their uh, cancer uh, people. So I believe you have to meet very rigorous criteria and have it, it you know, retested, I think, annually to make sure that you can oh. continue to be a comprehensive cancer network hospital. Now, when going between these different treatments, the radiation, having the chemo, um, did you have different doctors you had to visit for each individual one, or was this, uh, were they all a part of one team and you went to one doctor's office uh, to gather this information? Uh, actually, it was all separate, separate people. I had a medical oncologist. Uh, she really took care of the overall management of the cancer uh, and also the chemo. Uh, I had a radiation oncologist that only saw me for radiation issues, and then a surgical oncologist who, he's the guy who took it out. And then really, once the follow-up from the surgery was over, I've never seen him again. But I have followed up uh, originally every month, every six months, every year, and that'll be every couple of years because it's been more than five years. Uh, I'll follow up with both the medical oncologist and my radiation oncologist. 
Now, would you say having had worked in that cancer project really opened up your eyes to maybe wanting to bring some more change or to be able to um, have knowledge in your mind that you were able to help navigate the process a lot easier per, per se? Well, for me, it certainly uh, helped me understand more about cancer and cancer treatments. Uh, first of all, about a third of the people in the United States are going to be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their life. Wow, one in three. One in three. And most will survive very well. Uh, I also learned uh, that my preconceptions about cancer treatment were really quite wrong. Uh, you know, I'd expected that uh, chemotherapy would be extremely uncomfortable, uh, expected to lose my hair, and uh, just be uh, kind of a terrible mess. Well, today, uh, matter of fact, today I was going to bring it up later, but I volunteer in an and the infusion center at the cancer center. So I every Monday I go in and I have uh, about 20 to 30 patients that I work, work with and sitting down talking with them, making sure they have snacks and beverages because they'll be there for three or four or five hours for their infusion. Is this the place where you receive your treatments at as well? Or is it uh, a different location? A different location, but same same hospital. Okay. Uh, but rarely do I see somebody who's lost their hair. Uh, most people uh, really do not get nauseous. Uh, people will be tired, but it's chemotherapy today for the vast majority of people is quite quite okay, and that that surprised me. Uh, one of the other things that surprised me was the cancer centers are surprisingly upbeat places. Uh, prior to going in, I always thought it'd be like going to a morgue or a very somber, downbeat. It's not that at all. Uh, it, they're interesting places. Yeah, and I bet as I'm learning through the podcast and just life in general, there's always interesting people in these in these places anywhere that mm -hmm. you walk into and and I'm not saying you have a confined audience but uh when they're when they're kind of sitting down and yeah, they can't get away yeah, they can't get away from it at times but when you're coming you're giving joy of you're providing cookies and snacks and I bet that makes it easier as a conversation starter as well whenever you're walking around and handing out snacks and people are looking forward to seeing the man with cookies <laughs> yeah Sugar daddy. Yeah, exactly. That's what or one of the yeah. one of the ladies ladies used to call me. My my brain goes to he's the pusher man, kind of kind of coming through this card. I made the joke earlier. I was like, oh, do you have your candy striper outfit to kind of go through as well? You know. Well, pretty much. I mean, how can you not like something where your where your job is to go entice people to take all these sweet things they shouldn't eat? And but, that's something that I think we need to promote more out there. That these. These this volunteer stuff and this are out there and if people are really appreciative of it of just spending that small amount of time like my mm -hmm. quote says in the beginning just being listening ears being willing to kind of sit there and you never know what impact that's going to make on someone's life of just having a sweet cookie can really kind of just turn your day around. Well, that or talking to someone with a similar experience, whether it's uh, working in a maternity ward, uh, a pediatrics ward, or whatever. 
uh, where you can go in and talk to somebody that's just starting this and who is probably scared to death. Yeah, I can definitely say that any experience that's new is going to be scary. And if someone firsthand experience makes it a lot easier to understand mm-hmm. and comprehend. Absolutely. So it, it works out well for, for the patients. And I, I certainly get a lot out of it too. Now, after the going through this, I returned to my job, uh, working with employers to help them with their policies and practices. And, uh, being able to explain my story to them uh, was really very compelling. People would listen more uh, because, again, somebody had had the experience. Uh, it also uh, made me realize the, the tremendous importance of a support network for somebody uh, for a major illness or injury. Uh, you know, without supportive family, supportive friends, uh, it would be very difficult. So caregivers are critical for anybody that uh, has a serious illness. And I, I think caregivers don't get the training or the support uh, or the recognition that they deserve. And so uh, kudos to everybody that's been out there and is help take care of other people, other family members or friends or neighbors. And it's, as you mentioned, the support system, support team, caregivers, um, it affects everyone. Everyone is entirely involved with it because they love the individual. They are invested in in the process as well for it. And just because they're not receiving the treatment doesn't mean that they're not hurting at a similar level, but differently. And this is psychologically or mentally because of, I could not imagine having been in your wife Lydia's shoes of mm-hmm. trying to kind of come to terms of because y'all weren't married that long at that point whenever you were diagnosed. Correct. Like that could be a I only had this short period of time with him, or what can I be able to do to be able to make, you know, this last a little bit longer? Because psychologically there's just a lot there. What would you say from your from your side, how did it affect you psychologically? Get it, whenever you first were diagnosed, and how you were able to come along as things unfolded, and almost it's just going to sound morbid. I'm not trying to make it sound morbid. How do you come to terms with? Okay, there is this opportunity. There's not opportunity. There is this chance that I may not make it past a year or two years or five years. Well, <clears throat> certainly uh, when you go into the uh, hospital and somebody. Uh, tells you you have a cancer diagnosis, as soon as somebody mentions cancer, uh, virtually every patient just sort of mentally blanks out. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, Lydia accompanied me in all of my doctor's visits, and it was very helpful because we both heard slightly different things, and we would compare notes on what do we think they heard. As far as a a caregiver uh, or somebody in the family, uh, I believe that it's probably tougher on them than the patient because the patient has got uh, a lot of things that's going on. Uh, I, I liken it to be a parent where when your kid is sick, you often wish, I wish it was me, not them. 
uh, because it's almost more painful to stand by and watch somebody you care about be ill or injured. So I, I think it's as tougher, tougher on a caregiver. Now, did you start going to um, psychological therapy while doing this as well in order to try to be able to cope um, with Lydia and family members as well? Because I can only imagine trying to tell somebody uh, is is really hard and, and also trying to come to a little bit of terms. I know myself, I, I, I go to therapy all the time just to kind of be able to clear out my mind. Do they recommend you doing that after diagnosis to go see psychiatric help or no? I don't. Well, at the at at the Seidman Cancer Center, we have a pastoral staff. We have social workers. Uh, we have psychologists, and all these services are available to cancer patients. Uh, I really only availed myself once or twice to some of the uh, uh, social worker services that were available. Fortunately, I knew a lot about them because that's what is teaching people about or telling them about in the consulting work. Uh, but the type of services that people need or the amount is, is extremely variable. And uh, I, I think because I'd learned a lot about cancer beforehand, it probably wasn't as difficult for me as somebody that's uh, it's just coming out of the blue, and it's all new. So I, I th think that year of working on the project made it much, much easier for me. And yeah, having that pre-knowledge is a, of a powerful tool because a lot of, in any experience of having some knowledge makes it a little easier to understand. And, and I feel bad for, for those that don't have someone to kind of lean on or not having that background experience um, for maybe a family member that hasn't discussed it, or maybe um, it's just not their field of study. Do you have any recommendations for where to go to start looking for materials? Uh, if after, say, a diagnosis, earlier we mentioned saying, hey, um, you know, there's a lot out there of hoax material mm -hmm. or not useful. Where would you recommend someone, say, start looking? There would really be four places I think people ought to look. Uh, one of them is the National Cancer Institute, uh, part of the National Institute of Health. Uh, they have many good materials. It's usually updated. I always look at the dates. <laughs> uh, they have good information that I trust. Uh, the American Cancer Society has good information that I trust. Uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncologists, or ASCO, has a lot of good patient information. Uh, the one I rely on and recommend the most would be uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or nccn.org. They have uh, patient uh, information. It's very complete. It's for the people who want the long version, because their booklets are about 100 pages for each type of cancer. Uh, what I like about those is they're updated. Uh, if major things have changed, NCCN, again, is the group that sets the protocols for cancer treatment. So their information booklets about cancer are 
in line with the treatment that you're getting. Uh, and that's helpful. Uh, you can download them for free or you can have them printed and sent to you. But again, I'd recommend National Cancer Institute, American Cancer Society, uh, ASCO or American uh, Society of Clinical Oncologists or nccn.org. Do you know of, per se, any advocate groups to be able to kind of help understand the process better? Because I know a lot of the times the terminology is way over overheads to be able to get it. And especially um, when you're overwhelmed yourself trying just to comprehend it, do you know of anything of that sort that's out there? Yes. Uh, in many communities, uh, they go by different names and... Uh, you can research them, but would be local cancer support networks. For example, uh, here in the Cleveland area, we have a great one called The Gathering Place, uh, where they have on-staff social workers, on-staff uh, dietitians, art therapists, music therapists. They have group uh, counseling for uh, people with cancer, for kids about every service that someone could want uh, to help support them through the cancer uh, cancer journey. Yeah, that's good to know because not everyone has a family member that may be nearby mm -hmm. or they may just be the only person left. And so having that knowledge to know where there's a support group at in an advocacy is, is very important. I recommend anybody that if you're just lost or confused with any topic, it doesn't have to be cancer, it could be anything of try to find an advocacy group or uh, groups to be able to kind of help you understand. Because if sometimes when you go into, not sometimes, a lot of the times when you go into the medical world, it is, the terminology is so hard to be able to grasp and understand. And don't just say, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, mm -hmm. if you don't really understand it, because if you're not giving yourself the best chance for um survival and also uh, being able to follow up with, say, I'm not going to say rules, but a regimen if you're not really understanding what you're doing. Oh, very good point. So I think for any serious medical condition, ask the doc, ask the nurse, ask a social worker, where can I get help? Where can I get information? And again, be careful of where you get information. So uh, when you read something that says, you know, forget what your docs told you, just put it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a long road. That's a long road for sure. But yeah, ask. Lots of marvelous resources out there for almost any serious uh, illness. Yeah. If you don't ask, you don't know, as the famous quote says. Now, I want to jump backwards because I find this extremely fascinating with the the way you eat and, and the process of, of how you've changed your diet completely from where I first met you to where you are now. With um, going to a dietitian, what was that first recommendation that they started to put you on from not having a stomach and having to go from eating things that you were typically used to, to now having to slowly ease your way back into eating some of the foods you do like? Well... <clears throat> I'm actually back to eating pretty much whatever I like. Exactly, which is great. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah, it's good news. Uh, talking to the dietitian uh, was helpful, and 
You know, she would coach me along how to eat uh, a lot of small meals because initially uh, with no stomach, which is kind of like a reservoir for food after you eat it, uh, you can't eat large meals. And over time, uh, your intestine will stretch and form almost a pseudo stomach. Interesting. Uh, but it doesn't have the, uh, the gastric acids or the enzymes or other things that are necessary for really digesting food well. Uh, matter of fact, in this particular surgery, for when they remove your stomach, uh, you actually lose the use of a large portion of your intestine. Wow. Uh, so nutrients are absorbed in different places in the intestine. Uh, for example, iron is, uh, I believe, typically absorbed at the very beginning of the intestine, the duodenum, and at the very end, uh, the ileum. And so as you, if you lose part of your intestine through either cancer or an accident or something like that, you do have to very carefully watch your nutrient status. Uh, for people with out of stomach, the one thing you can't absorb easily is vitamin B12. And so uh, they monitor that very carefully. They'll usually give you monthly injections. Uh, but if you don't get them, uh, you start to have neurological problems like difficulties walking, difficulties with your memory, and uh, needs to be addressed. But again, it's purely a nutritional issue because you don't have a stomach. But if you watch that, life is like surprisingly normal. And I'll sit there occasionally and think, how the heck is this so normal? <laughs> now, with sweets, I know you've always mentioned that I have that you have to eat, you can't eat too much sweets or too much sugar at one mm -hmm. time. What is that kind of level that you kind of have to, you can eat with sugars and what's the kind of results if you go too far? Well, actually what it does is force you to eat the way you should eat on sweets. <laughs> That's a nice thing. It's like... Gosh, if you want to have some cherry pie, great, have a piece of cherry pie. Just don't eat three pieces at once. Uh, the reason for that is if you have a stomach, uh, your stomach will release food through the bottom, I think it's the pyloric valve, uh, a couple teaspoons at a time. So it gives over an hour or two to empty the stomach. And with sugars, the body can absorb the sugars through the intestine very efficiently. Uh, it might spike your blood sugar, but it, it can absorb them, uh, store the excess in the liver as glycogen. But if you don't have a stomach, it's really efficient. It all dumps into your intestine in one big chunk. And what happens is it uh, it's a purely a physical thing. It causes uh, an imbalance in the fluids uh, and changes the osmotic pressure in the, in the intestine. So it sucks all sorts of water into the intestine. And that makes you have to almost immediately run to the bathroom. So uh, 
the downside is you lose your entire meal. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quick. Kind of, so you're not getting to actually enjoy the meal you had. Correct. So again, if you just eat like a sane, normal person, you know, one bowl of ice cream and not four, uh, one glazed donut as opposed to six with a cup of coffee, uh, people do just fine. Do you have to watch out for, I guess, again, do you have to watch out for like salt intake or do you have to watch out for anything else similar to that with the sugar that may cause, stu- uh, not stomach, but intestine discomfort or anything that you normally wouldn't have? Not really. I, I think as long as people are being uh, somewhere in the range of not stupid, uh, it's fine. Uh, I really haven't had to moderate you know, other foods uh, that much. Now, the, the wonderful part of this, though, is, for example, without the gallbladder, I can't emulsify fats well. And uh, uh, therefore, I don't absorb much fat. And with that, my cholesterol has dropped like a rock. <laughs> so uh, my, my doc looks at my cholesterol and basically kind of remarks that a lot of people would just love to have my cholesterol <laughs> level. So, Yeah, with, you said earlier about that you had to have the B12 shot because if it becomes a, de- it's a deficiency mm-hmm. uh, from that. Do you have any other types of medications that you have to be able to take now post, um, was it now five years Coming, uh, coming up on six. Coming up on six that um, you have to be able to take. Now. Oh wow, that you have to be able to take um, continuously to maybe help supplement like the B twelve or uh, in order to maybe continue to fight off potential of a um, out of uh, what's the word I'm looking for out of um, trying to fight off the cancer cells from possibly coming back and spreading. Is what what is medications that you now particularly take for? Post-surgery. Post-surgery, really, the, the principal one is the, is the vitamin B12. Uh, calcium is a little harder to absorb, so I do take uh, calcium supplements. Iron is a little more difficult, so I take iron supplements. And then up here in cloudy Ohio, vitamin D is a problem, whether you've got uh, stomach cancer or not, so vitamin D. But it doesn't require any prescription medications or anything uh, expensive or difficult to obtain. Yeah, that that's good to know that you can just almost go to your local pharmacy and be able to grab whatever you kind of need. Exactly. Do you continue to meet with the, um, you said six months and then a year uh, um, meeting with doctors to be able to kind mm-hmm. of keep a constant check on your um, post status? I do, and uh, Lydia and I uh, go in together. It's really now uh, devolved almost more into a social meeting because, you know, it's how are you doing? That takes about 30 seconds, and we spend the next half hour just catching up on what we've all done in the last last year. Uh, one of the challenges of gastric cancer is it's basically asymptomatic. So, uh, how do you really know if you're having problems? And so we'll 
go over some of the things that I should be aware of. And, uh, uh, but really, there's not much that they can do as far as, as far as going in and saying, oh, we've got a problem because you don't notice. Ah, now is there, is there a probability or a, a number of coming out of remission after being had six years of being post? Is there, does this open up other potential cancers from having had cancer once? Cause I know that's sometimes a miscommunicate, a misconception by people. Well, at, at this point, my likelihood of this returning is very small. Uh, my likelihood of getting other cancers is no different than before. So, uh, in many ways, I, I'm essentially through with my, my cancer stage. So, that's wonderful to hear from any perspective of saying, wow, like, kind of made through the rough in some, in some <clears throat> friends, and now I just got to keep a little watchful eye. Um, did you have... Over the years, you've discussed that you met some people that had similar um, cancer to you. How does it, not saying how, okay, I can think of my wording here. You've lost some friends Correct. from this as well. Mm-hmm. And how does that, what did you notice were kind of differences of how they went through their process and how you went through their, to your process that you maybe would have recommended or have um, seen that in the future that you would recommend for people to watch out for, or um, that maybe one of them may have missed. That was very wordy and kind of a a weird long circle. That's okay. Um, Our radiation oncologist uh, asked if I would meet with uh, a family, uh, a husband and wife. He had, the identical cancer at the identical stage, uh, but was about 20 years younger. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I met with them, and then Lydia and I met with them. We actually developed a, a very nice friendship with this couple. Uh, unfortunately, he had a more difficult time. Uh, his cancer recurred, uh, but within uh, probably about a year, and so they had to remove his entire esophagus and they replaced his esophagus with his transverse colon. So they essentially attached his colon to the bottom of his throat down and ran it uh, be- underneath the heart and between the lungs and attached that to the top of his small intestine. Uh, regrettably, that also uh, failed or the cancer came back, and sadly he passed away uh, about two or three years after we after we met him. We still continue to see his wife, uh, see her as often as we can under the circumstances today with COVID, uh, but uh, uh, had become very good friends. It was, it was sad to lose him. Uh, but one of the things when you do get cancer is, I, for, for many of us, we under, start to understand mortality better, that uh, life is temporary. Uh, it really doesn't occur to us when we're right in the middle of life. Uh, and I think you start to approach things a little differently. 
you don't put things off. Uh, you try and find uh, something good you can do every day and uh, enjoy life. Uh, unfortunately, Kate, you and Katie became the, uh, the the sort of unlucky recipients of this. I don't consider that unfortunate by any means. I consider that to be a, a true blessing to be able to have that. No, think of your garage. That's okay. Uh, There's lots of treasures in there. Well, because after the diagnosis uh, and right before the surgery, uh, we were talking a lifespan of one to maybe two years if I was lucky. So uh, uh, I packed up all the family heirlooms and explained them to Katie and took took them all down to Georgia. So now my basement is wonderfully clean. <laughs> That's true. There's, I can't remember how many boxes it's numbered up to, but the way that they did it was phenomenal. You had the box with the weight on it, mm-hmm. so we knew exactly how to stack it up and put it. And they brought shelves that they installed in our basement too to be able to properly house them so they're not just randomly sitting on the floor. I mean, Ken is extremely organized. And the whenever he talks about his basement, there is a whenever you come into the house, he has... And he starts talking to you. Whenever he says the words, come down to the basement with me, you kind of know that you're either going to come back up with something that you never thought that you you know wanted, but he's going to try to pawn something off on you. And maybe still don't want. <laughs> <laughs> but you wind up coming back with it anyway because he's very convincing. But there's a specific look that he has and he, he'll rub his fingers together too. So it's kind of maniacal. But that's the ongoing joke of just don't go down the basement with the kin. You're going to wind up coming back up with five, 10, 15 things that you never imagined <laughs> that, that would have come up. You say not anymore. It's in your garage. This is true. The majority of it is. That, that is a true statement, <laughs> which we're still going through. I'm going to say from, from my side of the story is whenever you were diagnosed, it was right when Katie and I were getting married. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. y'all were not saying private with it, but we didn't, you were being very respectful in trying to hold back of not sharing too much information in order to scare us as we were going through this part in our life. And that I can only imagine was very hard for you in to kind of almost having to be secretive to your well, your daughter. Yeah, yes and no, because you were married in September. That's true. But uh, I was diagnosed in October. Oh, see for some reason my brain had it earlier. However, or, we kept it really quiet and didn't tell you anything until you came up here for Christmas. And so I don't know if you remember that, uh, I think it was the day you arrived, uh, we sat in the family room and uh, you and Katie sat in one love seat and Lydia and I in the other across from you and just told you in uh, straightforward and pretty good detail, uh, this is what's going on. And I thought it was a very good conversation. Oh, it was it was, a, it was great. It was not you know emotional or difficult. Uh, it was just very frank. And then we kind of moved on with life. Yeah, and that's for sure something that I'm thankful for. That <clears throat> you were transparent once we started talking. It was you threw it all on the table and let us ask questions. You let us kind of do what we needed to to do, be able to understand uh, the process. But it's still. Scary for any individual to have to tell a loved one, and then from the other side, the loved one trying to comprehend and understand 
what's happening from that mm-hmm. other end of the spectrum, especially being states apart as as well. So I deeply appreciate the way that you've approached it and continue to evolve and share with us over the years what's kind of taking place with your health and as well as what you're doing with the community of going out and helping uh, within the hospital by delivering cookies, keeping in contact with um, family that you were connected with that had a loved one pass away from it. What you're doing is very humbling and very much um, appreciated and, as you said, underappreciated by some people because we don't know it's out there. So I, I recommend to anyone that is going through this uh, or have gone through this, try to find ways to interact within your community to be able to kind of pay it forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, because that's we are social creatures and we all gain knowledge from each other. And being able to share that is extremely powerful because once you've gone, kind of that story can go away with you if you haven't shared it. So it's your being able to pass along your knowledge that you've gained because of no two person has that same experience as the other. So that's my little tidbit of information today that I'm going to throw in there. Is there anything, Ken, that you'd like to share that we may have haven't discussed today or just something that's on your mind that you would just kind of like to throw out there? You know, it's all good. Uh, Life's good. Occasionally you'll find some uh, rough bumps in the road, and you just go with it. Uh, Make the best out of what you can. Like Cade said, uh, if you've experienced something, it could be anything from uh, heavens of bankruptcy to you know, recovering from alcoholism or a heart attack. Reach out to, to other people and help guide others. Uh, it's rewarding to the people that you help and certainly rewarding to yourself. Uh, Mondays are my favorite day. I get to go out and pass out cookies and have a good chat with people. And every day that is something good to have to look forward to. That's a wonderful thing. Ken, I want to thank you for coming on here and talking with us. Thank you for being a wonderful, continual father-in-law in the way that you raised your daughter to be the way she is now today. I'm extremely blessed to be a part of this family, and you've done a really good job of taking me in and and making me feel like as a part of it. The last, we've been married for six years, been together for 10 years. So Mm -hmm. thank you for that. Well, thank you. I think that this has been wonderful. Katie's really gotten a prize. (laughs) Everyone's a winner when it comes to this. So to close out, everyone, if you like the podcast, share it with others. Like, subscribe, word of mouth. It's all, there's many different ways out there. I'm, I'm found on all different platforms, almost I'd say 90% of platforms to uh, listen to it. So if your friend goes, hey, I only listen to it on Google Podcast. It's out there. It's on Google Podcast. It's on Spotify. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you continue to enjoy these episodes. You don't have to listen in order. You can jump around to whatever topic works for you. But uh, most of all, as you leave today, the key thing is to let your curiosity fly high. This is Cade Curtis with Learning From Friends. Have a good day.